All right, grab your Bible. We got some places to go, people to see, things to talk about. John 8 where I want you to go. And if you don't have a Bible, don't own a Bible, you can have those in the chairs. Take that home with you if you don't own a Bible. Go to page 868 in those Bibles. Lay that in your lap. Then in your program is a little place for you to take some notes. I think it's going to be beneficial this morning if you take some notes. We are going to have an extremely important conversation. We've been talking about this idea of fake news. And uh, it is kind of in the news, fake news, because it is something that is really important for us to know about. We said fake news is just a news story that somebody came up with that isn't true. So there's a lot of different reasons people come up with fake news stories, right? And, uh, but they come up with a fake news story, they report it as true, and then here's what happens. It gets repeated as true, and then it gets repeated over and over and over again until eventually it gets believed as true, right? That's how fake news works. In fact, how many of you saw last Sunday night on 60 Minutes, there was a whole feature on fake news? Anybody see that? Okay. Not many of you, but you can still go on their website, check this out. But they talked about fake news and how important and prevalent it is in our culture today in the news media. And then they talked about how in the world, this was interesting to me, how in the world fake news gets traction. Like, how in the world does fake news start and then get traction until eventually it's believed, right? And that was intriguing to me, so I was kind of reading. And uh, I'm not technologically advanced in my understanding, but here's how I understand what they were reporting. That literally there is this artificial software that you can purchase. And what happens is somebody comes up with a fake news story and they purchase this artificial software, these things called bots, that literally what they do is they retweet the story or repost the story. So artificially, it gets reposted, retweeted over and over and over and over again. So eventually what happens is this, that I might put out a fake news story and it might have a million different uh, people who reposted it, retweeted, whatever it might be. So by the time I'm reading it, I read it like, wow, a million people have read this. It must be true, right? Because it has been repeated and retweeted and all that so many times, right? And so the secret to fake news is simply this. The more I repeat it, the more likely it is to be believed as true. And it's become quite a phenomenon internationally, right? It's not just something in, in the United States of America, but it's a phenomenon in, internationally. It is a phenomenon, obviously, that kind of takes precedence in the news in our own country. And it is something that has had impact regionally. I don't know if you knew this or not. How many of you read the fake news story about Cedar Point in the last month? Anybody? Yeah, okay. I'm kind of a news junkie. So uh, Pastor Greg sent me this article that a fake news article was posted that Cedar Point wasn't going to be open this summer and uh, that it was going to be closed this summer. And, and it was reported as true and people were believing it as true. And Cedar Point had to get involved and say, no, 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 it's not true. We're going to be open, right? So we said this, that fake news... It's something that has international impact, it has national impact, it has historical impact. There's things that we've learned in U.S. history class that, quite frankly, didn't quite happen the way that we learned it. Uh, it's something that has regional impact, uh, the Cedar Point thing, and it's something that has local impact. I don't know if you knew that or not, but it, it impacts Norton, Ohio, right? Uh, it's something, fake news is something that impacts us right where we're at right now sitting here in Norton, Ohio. In fact, unfortunately, I got to tell you this, that it impacts not just Norton, Ohio, but it impacts our campus. And I feel a responsibility to 
to clear some of that up. And if you're here and you're a guest, I apologize, I got to do this. But, but there are certain things that get reported and then they get repeated. And uh, that's happened on our campus. And I need to clear that up. And so I want to make sure that you hear what I'm saying so that it's clear. But there's been a fake news story that's been reported and repeated uh, here on our campus. And I think it's only right that I shed some light on it. But it has been reported and repeated over and over again that there is a certain pastor who is really, really good looking. And that is his name, and it's been repeated so much that I think eventually he's believing it's true, right? And so I just wanted to clear that up this morning, all right? We better take that picture off there, okay? Fake news, um, fake, fake, I might get in trouble for that one. Fake news is not a new phenomenon. It, it, it's a new term, and, and most of you recognize it's not a new phenomenon. It's something that's been going on for a, for a long time. People come up with stories, repeat it, so on and so forth. And here's what we said. This is why this is important. It's relatively inconsequential what you believe about some of the things that we've talked about. I talked about Paul Revere and when the signing of the Declaration of Independence, all that stuff. I've talked about all that relatively inconsequential what you believe about that. It's relatively inconsequential what you believe about Pastor Bob and his looks, all that stuff. But here's what we did say. It is very consequential, very consequential what you believe about Jesus. In fact, we said that's the most important thing about you. And why we're doing this series is this, is that most people have heard of Jesus. Okay. Most people, when you say the name Jesus, like, yeah, I heard that name. In fact, a step further, most people, when you say the name Jesus, they not only have heard the name of Jesus, but a picture comes to their mind of Jesus. And we said that there are a lot of people that have heard of Jesus, but the picture that comes to their mind might not be accurate or complete because that picture is something that was reported and repeated. And for some of us, that picture is something that was reported and repeated. Maybe it's a Broadway play. Maybe it's a country song. Maybe it's a TV show. Maybe it's what our Aunt Ethel told us about Jesus. But there are a lot of different pictures of Jesus. We keep throwing new ones up there, right? Some of us, some of us have a picture of Jesus in there. You'll see the picture of Jesus. It's a bumper sticker picture of Jesus. And so the picture we have of Jesus, he's our co-pilot, right? Uh, Jesus is the, is the person that when life gets out of control, we sing the song, Jesus, take the wheel, right? I mean, that's how we look at Jesus. Some of us have a picture of Jesus, and that's the Bart Simpson Jesus up there, right? And, and if you look real close, he's kind of mean. In fact, underneath of the Bart Simpson Jesus is the sign that says, Jesus hates you. And there are some people, that's the picture they have of Jesus. They're like, if Jesus showed up, I'm not even sure he'd really like me. And then there's the Broadway picture of Jesus, Jesus Christ Superstar. Some of us, maybe a lot of us, and, and we wouldn't even know to admit it, have this picture of Jesus because we've grown up in the United States of America. We just assume that Jesus was an American patriotic and he looks like Uncle Sam, right? And so we have this picture of Jesus that we, we send him through a grid that we already determine in our mind. And many of us have these pictures of Jesus, incomplete, maybe inaccurate. And that's why we felt it was important for the next several weeks to say, what if we didn't just look at what was reported and repeated, but what if we said, Jesus, who did you say you were? What if we went right to the source and we said, Jesus, we want to hear from you. We want to know what you said. That's why your Bibles are open to the book of John, because in the book of John, there's seven different times Jesus said, I am, he filled in the blank. And so he helps us understand who he is. And so he says, I am. And then what he says after that helps us understand who Jesus said he was. This morning, I want to take a look at the third of those. And, and look here a second. I want to see your eyes because I want you to see as I say this, that, that what Jesus says this morning might be the most scandalous, show-stopping, jaw-dropping things Jesus ever says. 
it, it, what Jesus says this morning, okay, I'm just tell you this, give you a hint right up front, that you, you cannot leave here feeling neutral about some, you're going to feel one way or the other about. It is, it is that jaw-dropping. And Jesus makes this comment, to give you a little context, in one of the most antagonistic conversations he has with a group of people. And so there, there's literally this back and forth going on in John chapter 8 where there's, there, there's almost this argument happening. And in the middle of that argument, Jesus makes this statement. And the statement he makes, ready, is a DTR statement. Raise your hand if you know what I mean by DTR, okay? Raise your hand if you have no idea what that means, DTR, right? That you aged yourself maybe a little bit, I don't know. But DTR stands for define the relationship, Right? And so Jesus in John 8 is going to have a conversation, and what he's going to say is going to define the relationship. Here's the deal. We all have those conversations. You know what to define the relationship conversation is like, right? Raise your hand if you're a parent in the room. Any parents in the room? Let me see. You've had them. You've had these conversations. You just didn't know you had these conversations. A DTR relationship is just when you want to make sure the person that you're talking to understands the nature of your relationship. Because here's why that's important. It's not until I understand the nature and definition of our relationship that I'll know how to respond in that relationship, right? So if you're a parent, you have those kind of conversations with your kids. You want to make sure they know who's in charge, right? So you have a DTR, right? Uh, I've told this story. It was a couple years ago, but but I've had those with my kids. Uh, One of my kids, uh, when when they were young, and, and because I love my kids, I don't like to sell them out and tell you who, but their initials are Joel. But uh, when, when, <laughs> but, but, but when he was little, I love you, buddy. But when he was little, uh, I don't know how this got going and got traction, but all of his friends at school were calling each other dude. And uh, like, hey, dude, what's up, dude? Dude, 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 and dude, right? And so he thought what's good at school is good at home. And so he comes walking in the door, hey, dude, to me. <laughs> and I won't lie. I'm like, oh, man, you know? And I thought, maybe it was a one-time deal, right? And he kept duding me, you know? And I remember we had a DTR, right? Because I didn't want him to respond to me as one of his dudes. I didn't want me to say, hey, Joel, take the trash out. And him be like, you know, one of my dudes suggested that I take the trash out. So I said this to him, Joel, I'm not your dude, I'm your dad. And as long as we understand our relationship, we'll know how to respond in the middle of that relationship, right? Some of you guys have, have dated or not wanted to date or did want to date, and you had to have a DTR, right? That's the way it works. I remember when I was in college, there was this girl. She was a very nice girl. We were good friends. I, I, I was kind of a guy like, I'd be anybody's friend, right? I'll, I'd be kind to anybody. So she kind of started hanging out, right? And uh, she started going to the same classes I was going to. She started coming to lunch when I went to lunch. I'm like, wow, that's really good friends, you know? And uh, I remember I was in church one day, and I'm sitting in, they had back then, they had the, the pews. It was a long bench, and I'm sitting there. I was by myself, right? And I remember she came and sat beside me. And when she came and sat beside me, like, I'm saying, like, she sat beside me, but not, like, beside me. Like, she sat, like, beside me, you know what I'm talking about? And I remember looking like, hmm, this is interesting. And so I slid down. I'm like, I got to make a little room here, right? And I remember she slid down. And I remember that moment. I'm like, we got to have a DTR, right? I didn't know that's what it was called. But I looked at her and I said, hey, you know, when we're done here, you think we could talk? Why? Because when we talked, she had in her mind that I wanted to be her boyfriend. She wanted to be my girlfriend. That's what we're moving towards. And I'm like, yeah, no, (laughs) you know, not so much, right? And so it helped us know how to respond to each other when we define the relationship. Jesus in John chapter eight is gonna have the ultimate define the relationship moment. And it is gonna be something that you can't leave here feeling neutral about. 
And what he's going to say to the people in John 8, he says to us today. And let's get our bearings. Here's what we've said so far. In John 6, that's where we started. Jesus fed about 25,000 people at a little boy's lunch. It's incredible. You ought to read it. If you weren't here, go, go back and check out the message. But, but he says that incredible miracle, Jesus was a miracle worker, and that incredible miracle only points to something. Jesus only did signs that had spiritual significance. Jesus didn't come just so he could make a little boy's lunch, feed 25,000 people. He said, that points to the fact that I am the bread of life. He said, that's what I want you to know about me. I'm the source of life. I'm the sustainer of life. I'm the bread of life. Week one, that's what we looked at. Then last week, we took it a chapter or two later, and Jesus is in the middle of their big Jewish festival called the Festival of Tabernacles. And he's in the middle of the court of women in the temple where these huge candelabras were, and they represented the presence, the glory of God and God's guidance in their life, in their history. And underneath of those huge candelabras, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. I am the light that protects, the light that brings you out of darkness into light, and I am the light that will direct your path. He said, I am not a light, but I am the light of the world. And that leads us to John 8, beginning in verse 23. Now, let me give you a warning. We are going to race through a lot of scripture this morning. So if you don't feel comfortable using a Bible, that's cool, that's okay. You can follow on the screen with us. Verse 23, here's what he says. But he, that's Jesus, continued. And he's talking to the crowd and he says, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Look here a second. Don't read your Bible in black and white. I say that all the time. You say, what do you mean by that? Put some color in it. Like, put yourself there. If you put yourself there and you're one of Jesus' disciples, you might be like standing by saying, uh, hey, Jesus, you know, like, that's not really the way to win friends and influence people. Like, he looks at these people and he's like, y'all from below, I'm from above. Like, I'm not of this world, and he doesn't stop. It's like, okay, stop, now he doesn't. He says, I told you that you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am he, you'll indeed die in your sins. You want to talk about defining the relationship conversation. Jesus says, if you don't believe that I am who I say I am, you're going to die in your sins. We say it this way around here. We say that what you believe about Jesus is the most important thing about you. It is. But that's not something I made up. I didn't come up with that. Jesus is telling them, he's like, it is so important what you believe about me. If you don't believe that I am who I say I am, when you die, you will die attached to your sins, in your sins. That's what he says. That leads them to ask the ultimate DTR question, verse 25. They look at Jesus and like, Man, that's kind of a crazy statement. Exactly, who are you? Great question. In fact, look here a second. It is the most important question. It is the question to be asked before any other question. It is the most important question for them to be asking, and it's the most important question for you to be asking this morning. It's more important than you saying, hey, what are the things God wants me to do? It's more important than WWJD. What would Jesus do, right? It is the question before all questions. What do you believe about Jesus? Who do you believe Jesus is? That is the most important question. Look here a second, because you all, every last one of you and me, have a functional answer to that question. Every last one of us in this room has an answer to that question. If asked, who do you think Jesus is, we have an answer. And that answer is a functional answer. It's how we live our life. The way we define the relationship determines how we respond to Jesus. Some of us in this room, and I'm so glad you're here, some of us in this room think, you know, Jesus is inconsequential. He doesn't matter. 
In fact, some of us in this room think, you know, he's kind of crazy. Some of the things he said, I just don't buy. Listen, if that's you, listen, if that's you, I am so glad you're here. And I'm going to tell you something. I've said it every service. I'm going to say it again. If that's you, I'm glad you're here. And I hope you'll keep coming and hanging out because you don't have to agree with everything I say to come here on a Sunday morning. Okay? So if you're here and you're like, I just don't buy into this Jesus stuff and the stuff, I'm glad you're here. Let's hang out, right? You don't have to believe everything I say, and some of you are there. Some of you are like, yeah, you know, Jesus is cool. Jesus is my co-pilot, and so you would say, you know, take the wheel kind of Jesus, right? Or some of you say, Jesus is my advisor. He's my my counselor. I go to Jesus and and try to find out answers to the questions of life. Some of you say he's my assistant. He kind of helps me with life. Some of you say he's a great moral teacher, a great religious preacher. He's a great miracle worker. Some of you would say that about Jesus, and then some of you would say, no, no, Jesus, he is the king. But, but no matter where you would answer that question, all of us have a functional answer to the question, who do you think Jesus is? And so you have an answer to that question, and they are looking at Jesus and saying, who are you? He says, just what I've been telling you, verse 25, right from the beginning. And then he says, verse 26, something that, that, that underline it and file it in your memory. He says, I have much to say in judgment of you. When they heard that, there would have been like, he, he's turning the heat up a little bit. He's like, I got some things to say in judgment of you. But he who sent me is trustworthy. What I've heard from him, I tell the world. Verse 27, they didn't understand what he was telling them about his father. They're like, we we ain't getting this. And look what he says, verse 28. Jesus said, when you have lifted up the son of man. What's he talking about there? He's talking about in six months, what's going to happen? They're going to hang him on a Roman wooden cross. He says, when that time comes six months from now, then you'll know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. And even as he spoke, verse 30, many believed in him. He says, in about six months, for some of you, for some of you, all of a sudden the dots are going to connect. Because I'm going to be hanging on that Roman cross, and all of a sudden the things I'm saying, they're going to, bam, They're going to start connecting. Then verse 31, this is so interesting. To the Jews who believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Look here a second. It didn't to us, 21st century Americans, but to them, their ears would have perked up because Jesus is saying, "If, if you hold to my teachings, you'll be free. These are Jewish people that are sitting there saying, who in the world is this guy to tell us we're not free? And so this is why they say this. They answered him, we're Abraham's descendants and, we ain't, and we've never been slaves to anybody. How can you say that we'll be set free? Look here a second. This is interesting to me. Jesus says, hey, listen, it, it, I am the way to freedom. I can make you free. And they look at him and say, we are descendants of Abraham and we have never been slaves to anybody. What are you talking about? Now, you've got to read this stuff in color. Because that, what did they mean? We ain't ever been slaves to anybody. Well, here's the deal. If they mean historically and politically, ready? If they mean historically and politically, these cats are the, are the biggest victims to fake news ever, right? Because they were slaves to the Egyptians. You read the book of Judges over and over again. They were slaves to different captors. They were slaves to the Assyrians, the Babylonians in their history. And even while they're speaking, they're under the thumb of who? The Roman government. So if they mean historically, 
then somehow they've bought into some fake news historically, right? I don't think that's what they mean. I, I really don't think that. I don't think these people are, are that naive. I think what they mean is spiritually. Listen close. I think what they're saying is, listen to us. We are descendants of Abraham. We are children of the promise. We, he is our spiritual father. We are following the religion of Abraham. I think that's what they're saying. They're saying, spiritually, we are free. Verse 34, Jesus says, Truly, everyone who sins is a slave to sin, and a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Look here a second. They're saying, the fact that we belong to Abraham, that's how we're free. Jesus is like, yeah, no, you're a slave. He says, only way for you to be free is to belong to me. You see how he's turning the heat up? It's like, okay. And so all of a sudden, if you read verse 37 to 43, they go back and forth. Things start getting heated, and they eventually kind of get fed up. And they're like, no, no, you need to understand, Jesus, God is our Father. And Jesus said, I think not, because if God were your Father, you would love me. Instead, don't miss this. I love Jesus. Look, look here a second. If you, if, if you have a picture of a wimpy Jesus in your mind... You ain't got a picture of Jesus in the Bible. Just read verse 44 with me. Jesus said, if God was your father, you would really love me. But instead, you belong to your father, the devil. Now it's on. You see what I'm saying? He's standing in this crowd. And he's like, yeah, you belong to your father, Satan. And then Jesus does something that maybe some of you needed to hear today. He begins to let them know Satan is real. If you came in here this morning like, I'm not sure, Jesus believed Satan was real, and he tells us something about Satan. Look what he says. He says, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. Satan, he was a murderer from the beginning. What's he saying? He's saying from the very beginning, what Satan has been up to is destroying and murdering, and he's still doing it today. That Satan is all about killing marriages. He's about distracting and destroying families, ruining relationships, eroding character, killing dreams, creating doubt. That's what Satan does. He is a destroyer. He is a murderer. He is a wrecker of homes. That's what he does. How does he do it? Jesus doesn't stop. He says, Satan doesn't hold to the truth, for there's no truth in Satan. When Satan lies, Satan speaks his native language, for he is a liar, and he is the father of lies. He kills, he destroys. How does he do that? This is how he does it. He gets you to think that the very thing that's going to destroy you is actually going to help you. He gets you to think that somehow the grass is going to be greener. He gets you to pour the focus of your life into something that you think is going to bring you significance, thinks going to bring you purpose, thinks going to bring you somehow happiness, and it's a fleeing mirage. He gets you to doubt that God really cares. How does Satan destroy? He deceives. He lies. That's how he does it. So verse 45, Jesus said, yeah, I tell you the truth and you don't believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? They couldn't. If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? And then he answers this question. Here's why you don't believe me. Because whoever belongs to God hears what God says. And the reason you don't hear is that you don't belong to God. He said, the reason this isn't connecting is that you're not belonging to God. I don't think they thought that was a compliment. Because look at what they say, verse 48. The Jews answered him, aren't we right in saying you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? 
If you're not familiar with the Bible, let me tell you this. They are not flattering Jesus with this. <laughs> they hated the Samaritans. They are saying, aren't we right in saying you're a half-breed dog whose religion is polluted? That's what they're saying. Like, anybody who would say this stuff, aren't you some sort of crazy Samaritan who worships crazy? And, and, and if, if you're not a despicable Samaritan, maybe you're a delusional, demon-possessed guy. Like, you see how the DTR is heating up? Like, Jesus, if, if, if we're hearing you right, there's something wrong. Jesus says this, I ain't possessed by a demon. I honor my father. You dishonor me. I'm not seeking glory for myself. There's one who seeks it. He's the judge. Don't forget earlier, he says, I have things to say in judgment of you. Very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. At this, they said, we know you're demon possessed. Why? Abraham died. The prophets died. And you say, whoever obeys your word will never taste death. They look at him and say, you think you're greater than Abraham? He died. So did the prophets. And then they say the DTR question again. Who do you think you are? Most important question you ever ask. Jesus replied, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim is your God, is the one who glorifies me. You don't know him. I know him. If I did not, I'd be, if I said I did not, I'd be a liar like you. But I do know him and obey his word. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. Listen, Jesus is saying this, and this is how you need to understand this. He's saying, yeah, I know that firsthand. Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. They said, now we really know you're crazy. Verse 57, because you're only 30-some years old. You're not even 50 years old. And you've seen Abraham. Look at verse 58. If you underline in your Bibles, you ought to underline this. Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. Drop the mic off the stage. We read that and we're like, I am what? He said, I am. Like, we don't totally get it because 21st century America, we're like, yeah, Jesus sounds like some bad grammar, right? I am what? But to them, you need to know this. To them, not bad grammar. <laughs> New Testament's written in Greek. It would have been very clarifying Greek. Ego eimi. That's how they would have said it. Ego eimi. And, and they, it would have been very clarifying Greek language that would have pointed to an ancient Hebrew story that they were very familiar. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying. Because it would have taken their minds back to a story recorded in our Bibles in Exodus chapter 3 when God said to Moses, I want you to go lead the people out of Egypt. They're slaves. Moses like, I don't think I can. I don't think I should. I'm not sure I'm qualified. And then he begins to have this dialogue with God. Moses says to God, suppose I go and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me. And they ask, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God says, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you. That's where we get the word Yahweh. Some of you have heard that. It's just taking the Hebrew consonants and they put them in. Most, most zealous Jews wouldn't even say that name out loud. The great I am. 
And so what God is telling Moses in the Old Testament, he's saying, you go tell them I am has sent you, that I am the creator, I am the uncaused one, I am the one who has existed forever and will exist forever. I am the all-powerful one, nothing is too hard for me. I am the one who knows everything. I am the sovereign one. I am has sent you. And here's why that is important. Make no mistake about this. When Jesus says, before Abraham was born, I am They knew exactly what he was saying. You know how I know that? Look at verse 59. At this, they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Why did they want to kill Jesus? Because when Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am, here's what he was saying. I want you to write this down. He's saying, I am God. I am God. He was saying, I am the eternal creator I am the uncaused one who has existed and will exist forever. I am the all-powerful one, the ruler of the universe. I am the ultimate authority. I am the king. I am God. That's what he was saying. And they knew it. And that's why they picked up stones. Jesus said nothing, nothing that was more defining than this statement. When Jesus said this, what in the world did he mean? Three things. Let's write them down fast. Because I think they're very important. First, he means when he said, I am, he is saying, I am the only one with the authority to grace you with the freedom of forgiveness. That's what he was saying. He said, I am. And when he said that, he's saying, I am God. I am the only one with the authority to grace you with the freedom of forgiveness. Look what it says, verse 24. He says, I told you that you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am he, you'll indeed die in your sins. Jesus saying, unless you believe that I am, you die. And when you die, you will die in your sins. What is he saying? He's saying, I am God, listen close. And I am the only one who has the privilege and the power to forgive you and give you freedom from your sins. Let's say it again. He's saying, I am God, and he's saying, I'm the only one with the privilege. You with me? The privilege, and I'm the only one with the power to forgive you of your sins. He's saying, Dan, help me understand that. What do you mean I'm the only one with the privilege? Here's what I mean by that. The only one with the privilege to forgive you is the one who has the privilege to judge you. Think about it this way. I have two friends sitting on the aisles, opposite aisles. I have Nelson and Mike. I think they enjoy and like each other, but imagine that they got in an argument here in the middle of this service, and imagine this played out in front of us, right? And imagine they got to yelling at each other. Don't do it, by the way, but imagine they got to yelling at each other, and uh, it got so hot and heavy in here that they stood up and started challenging each other, and imagine, ready? I hope this doesn't happen. They're such nice guys, but imagine Nelson reared back and just clocked Mike, just punched him right in the face, knocked him out. Blood, lost some teeth. If you don't know he's a dentist, that would be a bad thing. But imagine, right? And imagine Nelson standing over and just doing this, and Mike's like, woo, like this on the ground. And imagine I run down, look at Nelson, and say, that's okay, that's okay. I forgive you. Let that sink in for a minute. How would you feel if you were Mike? <laughs> I think if I was Mike, I'd be like, that's neat, Dan. You didn't get punched. <laughs> Like, I'm the one who has the privilege to forgive that cat. You know why? Because that cat did that to me. You see, here's what, God is, here's what Jesus is saying. He said, I am the God. I am God. I'm the God that you have sinned against, that you have punched, you've spent your life ignoring, turning your back on. I'm the God whose name you're taking in vain. I am God. 
And so therefore, I am the one, the only one who has the privilege to judge you. And therefore, I am the only one who has the privilege to forgive you. That when we sin, we sin against God first and foremost. And Jesus wants them to know, I am the one who has the privilege, but I don't just have the privilege, I have the power. How does he have the power? Verse 28, Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. He has the privilege and the power. How does he have the power? Listen close, because he is the God who has the authority to judge me, and yet he has accepted judgment in place of me. Jesus is God who has the authority to condemn me, and yet he was condemned for me in my place. Jesus is the ruler exalted of the universe, and yet he became a slave obedient to death. Why? For me. The one who has the privilege to forgive has the power to forgive because he absorbed the penalty and punishment for my sin. That's where the power comes from. And what he wants them to know is I'm the only one who has the authority to grace you with the freedom of forgiveness. Some of you need to hear that this morning. You know why? Because some of you are sitting here this morning and you're like, man, if, if, if people knew my life, what is the solution to the shame I carry around? And you know what? You know what? You know what? Jesus says, he says, I am. Jesus says, I'm the solution to that. Some of you are sitting here this morning and and you're saying, you know, what's the secret? What's the secret to me overcoming my past? My past haunts me. What's the secret? And Jesus stands and he says, I am. Some of you have a stranglehold of addiction and you're like, "What, what is the path to recovery? What is the path to finding freedom? And Jesus is like, I am. Some of you are in marriages and you're trying to fix them, trying to figure them out, and you want 10 steps to a better marriage. You're like, how in the world? What's the, the pathway to us enjoying what God intended for our marriage? And Jesus says, I am. Some of you have been in church all your life and you are strangled by the legalism and religion. And, and you're like, what is the secret to me coming out of this legalism and religion? And Jesus is like, I am. See, Jesus says, I am the I am. Not I was, not I will be, but I am. And for some of you this morning, you need to recognize his authority to grant and grace you with forgiveness. Because you're walking around with shame. You're walking around with guilt. You're walking around with a stranglehold of whatever in your life. And he says, I am the solution. I am the secret. I am the savior who accepted your judgment for you. That's not all he's saying. You know what else he's saying? He's saying this. He says, I'm the only one with the authority to guarantee you belong to the family. Verse 34, Jesus said, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs. I'd circle that in your Bible. Belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Here's what he's saying. The one who has the authority to set you free from your sin has the authority to set a place for you at the table. I'm going to say that again. The one who has the authority to set you free from your sin has the authority to set a place for you at the table. He's the one who has the authority to bring you to the family table, so to speak, as a child of God and say, there's a place here for you. He says, I am. I want you to notice this, that he's talking to very religious people. I don't know if you're picking up on this, but the people he's talking to in this story, they're more religious than you and I put together. They're, they're more moral than you and I put together. 
Like they're, they're just better people. They're just good people because they're keeping the law, right? I mean, from the outside in, they look like, bam, bam, they're doing everything right. And yet Jesus says you can be religious, you can be moral, you can look like a really good person and not be free. You can go to church all your life and not be free. You can, keep, you, you can make everybody on the outside think, man, that is the best person I know and still not be free because you don't belong. And Jesus said the only way for you to belong to the family is not to be religious, not to be moral, but is to believe me. Because when the sun sets you free, you're free. And when you're free, you belong. You see, a slave works for the family, not a son. A son belongs to the family. A slave is afraid of his future, not a son. A son's future is secure. A slave works for a verdict, hoping the master is going to be pleased with him, not a son. A son works from the verdict. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, when you say yes to Jesus, I have the authority. You now are a child of God. But that's not all he's saying. There's one more thing he's saying. And I think this one is maybe the one that leaves us the most uncomfortable. He's saying, I am the one with the authority to grace you with the freedom of forgiveness. I am the one with the authority to guarantee you belong to the family. And I am the one with the authority to guide you into life that is truly free. I want you to see this. Verse 31. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you'll know the truth. If you hold to my teaching, and the truth will set you free. Look here a second. got to tell you something. I won't say this much. Because many of you are sitting with the NIV version in your Bible, and it is a really, 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 really good version. Like it's the version I use. And so it's accurate, it's all those things, but I don't like how they translate it, this one word in here. Hold. Because I don't think it has the power and the flavor that was intended. And so here's the way the New Living Translation translates that. It says, Jesus said to the people who believed in him, you are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings. And then you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Here's how the ESV translates it. If you abide in my word, you truly are my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. What's Jesus saying? I want you to get this. Jesus is saying this. I'm the one, I, I am. I'm the one who made you. I am, I'm the one who can grace you with the freedom of forgiveness because I accepted your judgment. I am the one who has the authority to bring you to the table and I am the one who can guide you to life that is truly life and really free. Why, listen, listen, why wouldn't you trust me? He's saying, why wouldn't you trust me? He said, I'm the one who has the authority to forgive. I'm the one who has the authority to set a place for you at the table. Why wouldn't you trust me with the rest of your life? You see, for some of us, we're like, I said yes to Jesus, forgiven of my sins. I said yes to Jesus. I got a place at the table. Now, Jesus, I'll call when I need you. Kind of got this under control. And Jesus wants them to know, if you want to know true freedom... True freedom, I want you to abide in me. I want you to trust me daily. I want you to listen to me, follow me. I love you enough to give my life for you. Why wouldn't you trust me to lead you into life? Reminds me of a story, that a guy that I read a lot. You know this if you come here, Any, um, His name's Tim Keller. Wrote about a woman who changed his life. She's a Bible teacher, and she used this illustration Stay with me on it. She said, if the distance 
between the earth and the sun, which is 93 million miles, was reduced to the distance in a sheet of paper. So let's assume that represented 93 million miles. She goes on to say, then that means the distance between the earth and the nearest star would be a stack of paper 70 feet high. The diameter of the galaxy would be a stack of papers 310 miles high. Yet the galaxy is nothing but a speck of dust in a whole universe. And the Bible says that Jesus holds the universe in his hand or with his pinky. Listen. Then she asked this question. Is that the kind of person you invite into your life to be your assistant? You see, here's the point. Some of you need to hear this this morning. You have a functional answer about who Jesus is. And he's your co-pilot. He's your advisor. He's even your example. But you haven't gotten to the point where you've made him Lord. You haven't gotten to the point where you've made him king. Somehow in your mind, you're like, you know, I think I can figure this out on my own. Some of you are single adults in here. And I meet every Sunday night with single adults, me and a team of people. Six o'clock, I'd love for you to come and... And, and some of you are single gals, and I've talked to lots of single gals, and I'm like, man, I might never meet a guy. I might never meet that significant someone, and so I feel like I've got to take matters into my own hands, do things my own way, and maybe give parts of me away and begin down that path. And Jesus is like, no, no, no. I'm the one who has the authority to forgive you. I'm the one who has the authority to bring you to the table. I'm the one who has the authority to guide you, even if it's not the timing you would like to guide you into the freedom of life that really is life. Listen to me. I love you. Some of you are like, man, I, I, I want to find significance and purpose in life. And, and, and the culture says do it this way. And Jesus is maybe outdated in our culture. And, and I think I'm going to take matters into my own hand and really chase things. And, 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 and maybe if I need Jesus to jump in here and there, I'll ask him to jump in. Bless what I'm doing. And Jesus is like, I don't want to bless what you're doing. I don't want you to just start doing stuff and then say, hey, would you bless this? And if it messes up, can you clean it up? That's not what Jesus wants to do. That's not the part Jesus wants to play in your life this morning. Jesus says, I don't want to be your co-pilot. Jesus is like, I don't want to take the wheel when things get out of control. I want to sit in the driver's seat. I'm the one who has the authority because I'm the one who gave my life for you. I'm the only one who can lead you into life that is really life. Why wouldn't you trust me? Some of us are sitting here this morning and, and, and we're like, that sounds great, Dan. How do I do that? I can't do that unless I hear what he's saying. I can't ever let him have that authority in my life unless I say, I'm going to take a listen to what you have to say. I'm going to pay attention to what you have to say. And then I'm going I'm to follow what you have to say. You see, for some of us in this room, Jesus is, is inconsequential because we think he's crazy. And, and, and if that's you, I'm glad you're here. But there's a lot of us that Jesus is our assistant. He's our advisor. He's our buddy. He's our co-pilot. And he's like, I don't want to be anybody's advisor, co-pilot. Makes me think of a, a statement. And I, I kind of want to land the ship this way. I invite the band to set up when I'm reading this. It's from a famous author. His name's C.S. Lewis. Listen close to what he says. It's so powerful. He said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. He says, a lot of times people say this, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Listen close. 
He says that is the one thing we must never say. Because a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He couldn't be. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell himself. You must make your choice this morning. Either this man was and is the son of God or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut Jesus up for a fool. You can spit at him and you can kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He never left that option open to us. There is nothing more powerful that Jesus ever said or will say than I am. And if Jesus is who he said he was, you know what it tells me? There's no way I can leave here neutral. I either think along with the people in John 8 that he was demon-possessed and deluded, or I realize and recognize that he is Lord exactly who he said he was. It begs the question, then what do I do with this? I think there's several things. For some of us, we've never recognized this about Jesus. And so what we've been doing is we've been walking around trying to figure out the solution to our shame, trying to figure out how to overcome our guilt, trying to figure out how to fix our situation, trying to figure out how to outrun our past. And we don't know what the secret is. We don't know what the solution is. And this morning, Jesus says, I am. I am. And this morning, he invites you to experience the freedom of forgiveness today. To experience that freedom today you can do that this morning to experience the freedom that Jesus gives because he took your judgment for you this morning you can say yes to Jesus right there in your seat say God I know I'm a sinner and Jesus died for me and this morning I'm saying yes to Jesus you're the only one with the authority to forgive me beyond that there's a lot of you who've said yes to Jesus and you've experienced the freedom of forgiveness but if truth be told You're a slave to your religion. And this morning, what Jesus says, the John 8 Jesus, he says, I want you today to begin to live like you belong in the family. This morning, I want you to begin to live realizing that when you place your faith and trust in Jesus, you're free. Those who come to the Son are free, and they are free indeed. You are a child of God. You have access to the Father. Talk to him and the Spirit of God lives inside and you sit around the family table. You're not an only child. There's a big family. Lean into them. And then it's as though Jesus is saying, and, 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 and here's the deal. I'm doing something and I want to invite you to be part of the family business. Jump in. Live like a child today. The truth is, probably more of us that the way John 8 leans into us is this, is that Jesus would say to us, I want you today to recognize and respond to my ultimate authority in your life. I think that would be the ultimate thing Jesus would want us to see because a lot of us, we are cool on Jesus. We like Jesus. We even like some of what he says. And he says, I am not looking for people who are cool on me, who want me to be their co-pilot. I want people who recognize that I am the Jesus who died so that you could have life. And I am the 
only one who can guide you into life that is truly life. I think Jesus would come to us and say, I don't want to be your co-pilot, your advisor, your assistant. I want to be king. And so God, as we close with this song, I'm so thankful I get the chance to talk with my friends in this room. And, and this is a, a very defining the moment in relationship kind of talk that Jesus has. And I don't know where the people in this room are sitting, but I pray that you'd begin at this moment to lean into their life. God, I pray for a whole bunch of us that just call Jesus to take the wheel when we get in trouble. I pray that you would, this moment, this moment, work in such a way that we would place Jesus in the driver's seat. Even when it doesn't make total sense, even when no one else is doing it, that Jesus would be the ultimate authority to drive our life. I pray for my friends in this room who've never experienced forgiveness and they're trying to work their way out of shame and guilt. I pray this morning might be the morning they experience the freedom of forgiveness found in Jesus.